Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. Our email address is ogc at accessradio.biz and check out our Facebook page, which is Off Grid Christianity. So what were you doing Friday the 10th of April 1987? Maybe you weren't even born. I certainly was, and this day has a profound effect on me. I should have either been at the cinema or at a pub. That night, instead, I was with three other Bristolians and we took a minibus of Northern Irish people to the Clifton Suspension Bridge. Nothing particularly memorable about that, you might think, except they were from a small town called Cross McGlen. In 1987, that town and County Armagh were never too far away from the main news headlines. And I was meeting people my own age who had been kneecapped by terrorists or living in squalor with only IRA posters on the wall as a sort of wallpaper. Yet they were returning from Spring Harvest Christian event in Minehead, Somerset. And myself, well, I'd been a Christian for only two months, but a churchgoer for several years. And ever since that day, I've often wondered about the leaders and Crossfire Trust and the impact they had on my life. So, what does their mission statement, making God's love real to all the people within our reach, mean? Is it still applicable? How do you start and continue to build relationships in a divided community? What about trust? Whatever happened to the leader and director and founder of Crossfire Trust? Better find out then, as it gives me great pleasure, and I don't say this lightly, great pleasure to welcome Ian Bothwell and also his wife, Pauling. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll explain in a minute why we're sitting out on a roof. But before we go ahead, five questions. And Ian, you've been elected to answer all the questions. So are you sitting comfortably, sir? Yes, I am indeed. Question number one. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask some questions, who would it be, good sir? It would be Martin Luther King, because he's had a major impact upon the world, and I would just like to know whether he realised the impact that he was going to make because of that speech, and where it came from in his heart, and how it was delivered. What do you think he'd say? I think it came from his heart, and linked to the cause and the pain, the pain that, that came from the, the injustice that he experienced and the need for to live in a reconciled new environment. I think he dug deep to find some answers. Yeah, I could talk to him, I think he's an amazing bloke. Thank you, question two. Who is your favorite biblical character or favorite biblical story or favorite parable, please? It has to be the Good Samaritan parable because of the idea of crossing over in the other side and bypassing pain. And also the final line is about who is a neighbour and who had mercy. Mercy is something we don't really speak too much of or experience in society. And also because we have stopped to help people, taken them into our home and cared for them, and then ended up being a victim or being sued because they slipped on the floor. So there is a price to pay for being the Good Samaritan but it's our calling and that calling prevails. No doubt we'll talk about some of those issues later on. Thank you. Question three. Ian, if you were Prime Minister for the day and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be, sir? I would change the law on abortion because I don't think it's right. I don't think the unborn is protected and it needs to be. I'd also enforce care and support for the vulnerable, and that includes the young mother-to-be. Your episode 44, 45, I think you must be the 10th or 11th person easily to have chosen that answer. It's a difficult one because it's connected to the care of the woman 
also I, I know some guys who have gone into bereavement and needed counsel because they were denied the right to protect their unborn child. It's, it's complicated. Question four, outside of family events, Ian, what has been your most enjoyable day out? Well, a day out would be for me to go to Ackill Island, swim in the sea and walk up the mountain as far west as you can in Ireland and see nothing but the wild sheep. Whereabouts is that? Ackill is west of Westport, which is in County Mayo. It's about five hours from here. It's well worth the journey, leaving Northern Ireland behind and going down the broad road to the narrow road to the country lane. It's well worth going to the coast in the west of Ireland. And you've got Croke Patrick there, the big hill. Yes, it's, it's not far. You leave that behind. You leave the tourist route behind and you go where, where the sheep are comfortable. <laughs> Question five. What has been your most embarrassing moment to date, good sir? Well, there was nobody there to spot the embarrassing moment, but there's new toilets in RMS City, and I did think the urinal was quite close to the door. It was only after I used it that I realised that it was the washhand basin. <laughs> so I walked out quickly before anyone would see me. That's very good. I did like the story you told me earlier on, actually, because uh, you're the proud recipient of an MBE, and it was given to you by the now king... And uh, you forgot what you had to say. You just said hi or something like that, wasn't it, instead? What happened there? Yes, well, I was so chuffed that I had walked the five yards and I had turned the right angle. And there I was at the bottom of the step that Prince Charles, now King Charles, was standing on. And I was to say, Your Royal Highness, or something like that. And I looked up at him being so pleased with myself that I hadn't got it wrong. I just smiled and said hi. And he took the lead and leaned forward and entered into a wonderful down-to-earth conversation with about life in Northern Ireland, how I was and did I sleep at night and what my hopes and dreams were. It was a very real moment. Thank you very much indeed for those uh, answers. Let's bring in uh, Pauline because it'd be nice for people to know why they can hear birds chirping in the distance and wind occasionally going through the microphone. So just explain where we are, please, Paulie. We're sitting on the rooftop of the ex-Bank of Ireland, which we have just purchased as Crossfire Trust. And uh, we're looking right over the Cooley Mountains and over the town of Crossman Glen. And it's absolutely fabulous view. It is stunning. And for me, I haven't exactly got a Northern Ireland accent or even an Irish accent. So for me to be an Englishman standing here on the roof in the middle of Crossman Glen, that couldn't have happened 30 years ago. So... Give us a pot of history then of Cross McLean and obviously that will then lead into what the Crossfire Trust is all about, please, Ian. Well, Cross McLean was, uh, it's, it's still is a border town. It was surrounded by British Army. It had a helicopter pad in the local police station, which became very fortified. Television aerials were blown over by the helicopters. It was very isolated. It is in an isolated rural location in the south part of Armagh County, next to County Louth. So there is a border cut off. It's a farming community. It's isolated, little employment, and it just was an ideal place for her to grow. And it created, in many ways, a no-go area, and a region of fear where people kept out of. And in many ways, it became isolated and isolated a town that wasn't cared for and perhaps it still is it's it's in the north of ireland yet with an irish identity and culture it's wanting to be irish yet it's in british territory and control and currency and language 
and it, it really does create an environment that needs to be sorted out to do with identity and purpose. If you look at uh, Wikipedia and it talks obviously about loads of things, you can look up Cross McGlen, which I duly did, and the statistics of the number of people that died in Cross McGlen or the surrounding area is quite horrific really. What do you think 30 years on people here in Cross McGlen think looking back on what happened? I think looking back people have had many wake-up moments of regret and what was all that for. It's hard to believe that a country town with the gift of hospitality and kindness was denied the opportunity to live out what they were good at. But that's what happened. And now they're at a stage where they take every opportunity to show that they are welcoming, caring and open for business. It's a thriving business town, beautiful square, and they do like to welcome people from across the world. And they're glad to see people come with their cameras to show that the old has gone and the new opportunity for a prosperous future has arrived. And many people are enjoying that. I think if we'd asked that same kind of question to you in 1987, what could you see happening in 30 years' time? Do you think you'd have said, oh, yeah, I'll see you sitting on a roof in Crossman Glen, Martin. No issues at all there. What do you think you would have said 30 years ago? It would have been hard to believe. It was so intense, difficult, dangerous. Even making a speech like this could have been misunderstood. Who are you talking to and why? And in fact, people didn't really talk. And if people did talk to me as an outsider, they would often look over their shoulder to see if anyone was listening. There was just that fear and suspicion and, and awareness of the danger of being misunderstood. So we have come a long way. At one stage, it was so fortified and so difficult. It was hard to see how this town could have normal policing and have law and order. It was so difficult and divided and fearful. And, and people just kept their head down to get through because this was their home and didn't want to leave it. But it was difficult to stay in it. Well, let's go back in time then, before 1987. What brought you to Cross McGlen? What brought you to doing Crossfire Trust? I sat at home at Tynan with my mum and dad at a fireside one night when there was a television programme from BBC on the television. And it conveyed Cross McGlen very fearful. Soldiers with large guns. The only friend they had was a little dog called Rats that had been caught up in a bomb explosion and they cared for it. That was the only friend they had and it just looked like a devastating town and I decided to pray that God would send someone, someone who was... I really prayed out my own job description, single, (laughs) from Ireland and had some theological training. But then the, the reality of coming here... I remember looking down at my fingernails and thinking, well, would my fingernails be there when I come home? Because there was a rumour that people were abducted and murdered and tortured to death. And that reality, whether it was real or not, was certainly the image that Cross McLean had. And people were often sometimes misunderstood and ended up dead or kidnapped. And this area was controlled. So the idea that God would want me to come here frightened me and made me revisit all the songs that I had sung, send me wherever you will and I will go because I've learned to trust you so. And uh, what I had sung needed some reality, but the impact of the programme stayed with me. That was my calling. 
I saw, I felt, and I knew in my heart that God wanted me to go and tell the people that he loved them, cared for them, they weren't forsaken. And so I, I made my first visit way back then in 70, hmm, when was it? I can't remember. No. <laughs> 70 something. <laughs> I, I can remember uh, sitting in Cross Midland Square reading my Bible and looking for some comfort and I read the words in the epistle of John, perfect love drives out fear. And that made me go to the front do- the first door and I knocked all the doors, went right every state, reminding people that there was a God who loved them. And I decided then to go back and build up a relationship. And then I decided to play with the children who had no one to be goalie. It was as simple as that. I saw people at the market buying second-hand items, so I thought well, I could come with second-hand clothes and second-hand Bibles and, and fit into the culture. And I did that. And then I had an idea that if I had my own premises or vehicle so I, I could talk to young people. So I, I got a, an ex-Ulster bus and turned it into a mobile coffee bar and came here in the height of the troubles. I drove a bus, yes. It was never hijacked. Did get a few stones through the windows, and but it was a great place for young people to engage with others. And that really was the base for engaging with teenagers and listening well to their stories and trying to communicate to them that there was a better way of life. What were you doing for a job at that time? I only really worked for six months of my life in a department store in Armagh City where I learned to say, good morning, sir, hello, madam. And I transferred those skills with a different product, the product being the good news of Jesus on the doors and built up relationship. Well, the training sort of wore off, didn't it? By the time you got to Buckingham Palace, you couldn't even say that. <laughs> yes, well, I've learned to be myself and to say what, what I think I can say and remain comfortable. And when I met President Bush, it was the same. Yes, I've got something to say to you. And so I did tell him that people in Ireland prayed for him. And he said, yes, there's no greater gift you can give a world leader than the gift of prayer. But then I, I did say... A blessing, Mr. President, is greater than a bombing. And he squared me up and looked me in the eye. What did you say to me? I said, a blessing is greater than a bombing. And he pointed his finger. He said, that's good, but I don't want my people to be hurt. I said, I can understand that. But that's why I felt that I could say to him, yes. And then three days later, he went to war. And I often wonder if he ever did remember those words because I think I was on a mission there yes I was there to receive a peace prize for reconciliation at grassroots but I was also there to speak to the president and to say what was on my heart because no one's bought my tongue my tongue is mine my speech is my own and I will stand before God and give account and it's the same when I'm talking to members of Sinn Féin today when they want to find ways to build bridges with the unionist community there's no point in being ever so nice and polite and not saying something from the heart because the speech from the heart releases the passion and people can recognise that when you're motivated and you've got something to say and why you're saying it. It's a safety thing too because people know well, this is who you are. You're not trying to be someone else or copy the headlines in a textbook. You're speaking what you think and feel and that's important. Which George Bush are we talking about, by the way, that you said these words to? George Bush the second. 
Yes, and he was very accommodating. It was a peace prize that Bill Clinton had introduced. I was one of the three prize winners that the American embassy facilitated and was taken out to America, wined and dined and introduced to other politicians. And that was a very honourable experience. And Americans, wow, just would love to get inside the White House. And and I was comfortable there. It was all uh, prophesied at our prayer meeting that I would go to the United States. I I would have a message to give to President Bush. And I did that. It, It happened six months later after that. I store those words up in my heart. And that gave me the confidence to speak to the President. And the prize brought me in contact with the International Fund and other European funding bodies and I was known on that tour as a guy that wasn't funded which was very interesting I wasn't funded and yet I was speaking to the president and engaging with politicians who were making peace in America and I could contribute to their debate and be very comfortable doing so Fantastic You say the White House I suppose one of my favourite TV series of all time is The West Wing I would just love to go around the West Wing afterwards. What do they show you as far as going around the White House was concerned? Lots of white pillars and platforms. Do you know, when I look back, I wasn't overwhelmed. I was looking forward to climbing the steps up through the front door, but they brought me in through the back, and that's where I was allowed to bring my little camera. And, and I ended up taking a photograph of the president with the Irish editor who didn't have his photographer with him, and there I was with my little disposable and took his photograph and sent it to him. Oh, wow. When you're not told to bring a camera, do your own thing, where you can get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back more then on Crossfire Trust, if that's okay. You, you set the scene. What then really made you go for it full time? Wow. Yeah, the call never left. I think the reality that this is what God wanted me to do, it was fueled by some visits up to the northwest to Derry. There's a Republican plot. It's full of young men. And I can remember asking myself the question, how can I do anything about this? Do young men have to die in Ireland? And I walked behind several coffins of guys who were in the UDR or the RUC, and people were dying. And I did think that God's love could make a difference. So it was the need around me and the fear that I experienced, and, and but the, the calling... And maybe the, the, the seed planted in my childhood when I sat in a hard seat on a Sunday afternoon at what was called a Sunday school. Only Protestants go to school on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> but I went and I learned a wee song, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in God's sight. And I think that has stayed with me. It's very simple. We're all precious. We may have different colours of political identity and aspirations, but we are made in a good image and we're valuable and loved by the same Father in heaven. It's working it out in our divided society. When most people took sides, I was still interested in lives. And I didn't really mind, you know, didn't take the side of the British or the Irish. People needed to be loved and cared for and respected and valued. And that brought me to Cross Midland, but I can always remember when a teenager in Cross Midland couldn't come to our barbecue on a Friday night because he was collecting milk bottles, and I knew quickly what the milk bottles were going to be for. 
to be filled with petrol, petrol and turned into a petrol bomb. And, and I, I said to him, I had that said before I realised, and it sounded so Protestant, but I did say, why are you so bitter? And he said back to me, were you ever burnt out? And then I decided I would listen. I said, tell me, tell me your story. And he had been burnt out on the Falls Road in Belfast and came to cross Midland for safety. And that was the start of me listening, not just going with the message, but listening to the pain of the people, the division, what was driving them into violence and retaliation and making them feel uptight and angry. And I'm, I'm still listening and still think that's a big part of telling the story. It's not just the message, but the ministry of the heart that is most important. Thank you. So, seed is well and truly being sown. You now know that listening is far more important than, than talking. You want to do something about it. Darkly House, how did that come into the equation? Oh, I had taken young people away from Cross Midland to the coast, to a house that we had borrowed, and they had relaxed. There was no helicopters in the sky, there was birds singing. And so I went for a walk, reflecting on the li- lives that were chilled out and I came to a river and a bridge. I looked down at the river bread and the stones in the bottom were polished and smooth. And I thought of the lives back at the house and I thought if only I had a house in which the river of God's love could flow as in this river bed and remove the debris of fear and suspicion. And I don't know whether it was a prayer or... But I had these words. I will give you a house in such a way that you know it's from me. And I jumped with joy until I realised a car had come to the nearby T-junction and was looking at me, jumping on a bridge. But something was going on inside the heart. A promise had been given and I had received it. And I went back to the house to those same guys and said, Guess what, boys? God's promised me a house in such a way that I know it's from him. And one guy said, I always knew there was something funny about him. <laughs> you know, they rolled their eyes. And three years later, they said to me, where's this house? I said, it's worth waiting for. So, <laughs> but, yes, it took three years and more. And in that time, we had doubt and wondered, God, did you say? Darkly House had been in the market, but they didn't accept our offer it was sold to someone else. We prayed it would fall through, it did. It came back to us and the previous owner sold us a large country house with coach house garages on two and a half acre site for 38,000. It was on the market for upwards over 65,000 and that wasn't overpriced, but it was just months after a local church had been attacked and most people wanted out of Darkly, and I wanted in. But that made my supporters question the wisdom of moving into the border to a big country house that most people wanted rid of. I wanted into, and we lost some support. It was miraculous how we got it. We got a £10,000 gift to help with the mortgage and we got a mortgage and we got 60 people to give five pounds a month as a pledge so we had proof that how we could pay a mortgage but then we had no food to live on Uh, and we got married i got married to pauline who was a trustee (laughs) Uh 
um, things people do to keep their trustees <laughs> on board. That's a smart move. What year are we talking about, Pauline? You got married? Uh, we got married in, in 1986. Did you notice how I asked you? Because the husbands often forget. <laughs> yeah, I did realise that. <laughs> so you got married in 1986. You've got this house for £38,000. Wow. I've had the privilege of going around it. It is glorious. What did you see, Dark House, for the area? We wanted to have a house that had spare rooms that we could invite the stranger, the lonely, depressed, young person, couples into. And we wanted a house where we could have a fireside ministry. We didn't have the terms peace building or reconciliation or a civic society or anything like that. We just wanted to have a space in which we could gather around the fire and talk. We could cook food in the kitchen and share it. We could go for a walk and talk and chill out together. And it was pioneering. It was a new concept. Um, Again, we lost some support along the way. It wasn't going to be a Bible college. It wasn't going to be a mission hall. Or we weren't going to preach the gospel at 8pm. We were going to try and live it, which was a deeper calling than a meeting. It was going to be a way of life. We did engage with local people who were very suspicious. Glad that the local big house, as it was called, was going to be used for a good purpose. Yet we were introducing ourselves as Christians and we were taking people out of prison. didn't matter what political background they were, so we weren't fitting the mould. And we introduced ourselves to all the church leaders, including the Catholic Church, and that was an interesting experience. Why? Because I think they were as suspicious of me. Who was I? And did I not know parish boundaries? Because I was breaking the mould. I smiled when I thought of John Wesley, who talked about the world being his parish. Uh, but in South Armagh, the territories were divided up with uh, not just paramilitary connection, but denominations. And I wasn't of a denomination. I'd left that behind. We were just there as a group of Christians wanting to do something for everyone. Mm. So they had to try and get their head around that. And so did the local sergeant, who threatened once to sentence me with disturbing the peace because we had been to Katie in an outreach and young people were climbing on board the bus and having a great time. But the parents, the priests and the provost all wondered what the motivation was. So the rumour was that we were spreading drugs on the bus and so the police came to investigate and tasted the coffee and the sugar and yeah. We were breaking the mould and standing on toes and we weren't being very traditional and so mm, it was hard to pigeonhole us. Yeah, uh, 30 years later we have made our own track record, it's a proven one, we have been there and done that, been recognised by presidents and now the king and We want to get on with building a reconciled community because we know what it's like to be homeless and to be coming out of prison, nowhere to go, no one having hope. It's very despairing. We know there's people turning to alcohol and drugs. They're in great despair. And the reality of God's love can heal the broken heart and can set people free into a wonderful life where they're not looking over their shoulder in fear, but they're reaching out their hand and trust to their neighbour. I think it's being frightened, frightened of ourselves and frightened of our neighbours and frightened of who we are becoming when we break the mould. Irish people are controlled by history. We need to get off that roundabout and break that mould and be who we're meant to be, kind and loving to the world, 
practicing our creativity and our song and dance, but getting a new song to sing that includes everyone. I'm going to forewarn Pauling. You're going to be asked a question in a minute, Pauling, okay? But I think what you've been saying here as well, right at the very beginning, you were talking about being wholly available. You know, you make yourself wholly available. And the great Tony Campolo spoken to me once by saying that there's the great song I Surrender All and actually he wants to have the lyrics changed to I Surrender 10% (laughs) (laughs) or maybe less than 10% I'm not even talking about financially here but what has it cost you? Wow, family reputation invites to parties they're very limited people can't discuss politics in my company because I have a different viewpoint or religion because I have a different calling It's taken 30 years for my neighbours to wave to me and that only happened because I'd been to Buckingham Palace and that gave me a kind of endorsement. When you don't belong to a denomination, you don't be invited as guest speaker. Yeah, it's been lonely, painful, misunderstood. When you know that people are talking about you but not talking to you, that can all make you want to reverse away back on a Sunday because church isn't the most understood place. We're very comfortable with the poor, the needy, broken, because I can see myself in all of them. And yet uh, God is comfortable there in the mess, in the brokenness, with hope and reality. And we don't have to clean ourselves up to go to church, become as we are in community. I think the difference in our ministry and church, church lasts for an hour, but you can get away with things. (laughs) You know, best behavior for an hour. But in community, it's different. The isolation and the loneliness has been the most painful thing. Tell me more. When you have a dream and you want to share it, and it's the world's media that is more interested than the Christian press, you're wanting to engage with the resources to help more people, and the resources are tied up in nice church buildings with stained glass windows, or modern PA and technology with all the nice praise worship songs coming on the screen but not always the welcome or space for others. We're becoming more professional about church and yet not always having time to spend with people, quality time to be with the lonely, to go into prison and to spend time with someone who is not popular. Sex offenders are very lonely, very few friends, and there's shame about going to befriend someone who has committed crime in that area and there's fear also when when they come out that you're associated with them but that's the price I have been willing to pay because our mission statement God's love real to all the people within our reach all the people now that gets me into trouble yeah yeah because there's the popular terrorist and then there's the the guy who did stuff that some political parties want to pretend never happened they went over the edge and they're lonely there's been no great welcome mat for them some people got on the political think tank ladder and climbed to success and are in different jobs and different areas of life but there are many people left behind in pensioners bungalow living on benefits with very few friends but we're comfortable there with the lonely and the stranger knowing that the king of love, my shepherd is, who goodness faileth never. And being able to be a shepherd to cross Midland Square is a calling and a privilege with an audience of one. Wow, thank you. Pauling, 
there's a, a great quote you've probably heard it hundreds of times whereby they said behind every great man is an amazed woman so let's ask you then past 30 years from your point of view what's it meant to you it has been a pretty rough journey i would say the lack of support from the the local christian population has been difficult to understand we have been accused of being a cult and then once that rumor goes out then people won't actually come to find out who we are or what we do themselves they'll just listen to rumors so that's been difficult and i would probably say it wasn't for the christian church in england that it would be hard for us to survive especially in the early days why is that that's where we got our financial support and spiritual support emotional support we still do get quite a bit from england but we've been very misunderstood really by the irish church here why do you think the irish church over here and the irish christians let's say why do you think they've misunderstood what crossfire trust is all about because i think they're sectarian within the church and because of what we do and who we love and befriend and are comfortable with they wouldn't be so comfortable with well, let's talk about why we're sitting on the roof then, <laughs> in the middle of Crossburg Lane. Tell us more about this building then, Paulie. What's it all about? Well, this building we purchased at the end of January this year, 2023. It's been a long time in, in coming, but we finally got over the line, and we are just delighted that we have this building. At the moment, it's being used for a second-hand charity shop with a little area to have tea and coffee and uh, an area for our own food bank, like a kitchen cupboard where people can come and, and help themselves to some food. We hope to have gatherings, small gatherings, with local people to come and hear more of the wonderful story that Jesus has and the life-changing experience they could have in the town. You've very much undersold Darkley House. I'm so glad I went and looked around it uh, a couple of weeks ago because what you've got now is uh, an annex with loads of rooms, bedrooms there, people who basically need a room, bed, just maybe for a night. How do they come to you in the first place, Ian? Now most people are referred by the housing executive or social services, maybe PSNI, probation service, come through an agency and we like that because they can do some background track to see where people are coming from and to help us think through so that the right selection is made at the right time. When people come at the right time on their journey of recovery for us, wow, we really can help. We've got 12 beds in Darkley House and six apartments for independent living. Darkley House is a shared space, so that's often fun because there are ample bathrooms and shared kitchen and lounge but it's a community in recovery with pressing issues that send us to God to find help for the deep wounds of mind and heart emotion and spirit people have been wounded and people have been brought up in a culture where God is is out with a big stick and it's very hard to have the ministries of a father God but we are. And we've got ideas for more office space to be turned into accommodation. We're communicating with our neighbours, reducing their fear of the stranger, and we're building up links with agencies that we can build on site. We have two and a half acres. We have plans to build six more apartments and perhaps 19 what they call social housing, but I would love to yeah, yeah, yeah. rename it quality housing 
so that people can have dignity and support. We want to be able to have stepping stones out of Dartley House so that people can stay in touch with pastoral care and support and the resources of the charity. That's what we're working at. So somebody who's in trouble, maybe through the PSNI, that's the Police Service Northern Ireland over here, they are sent to you, maybe as a, as a last resort. They might be hearing from now on in that, oh, Dark House is a Christian thing. What would they see when they see you, for instance, Pauline? What would happen? Well, whenever they first come, we try to make them as welcomed as possible, as comfortable. Some people usually arrive quite nervous. They don't really know. They've heard rumours about us that we're Bible bashers and we're this, some or that. Everybody has to go to the prayer meetings every day. That sort of rumour. Is it true? It's not true, no. <laughs> it's definitely not true. We have food round the table where we share and people start to talk round the table. Food and talking go together very well. And somebody tells us a little bit of their story and someone else can relate to that. And so the conversation flows and it's just it's just a wonderful way to get to know people and people start saying things about their past that we don't know. That's when we know where the help is needed or the guidelines or where the signposting maybe to something else or another agency that we can help. Ian made reference to uh, an old hymn or chorus earlier on and of course what's just come to mind is when I needed a neighbour were you there were you there I'm not going to sing it but it seems to me that that's what you guys are doing not singing it either you're you're actually living it and you mentioned Ian as well and for Pauline please join in on this one you mentioned it 30 years ago it was really tough and you had the police coming on board the terrorists coming on board the coach to have a look what's going on if those same people that came onto the coach 30 years ago came onto the roof now what do you think they would say to you this time well done (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you kept the faith. Some have actually said that, recalling the night that they threw stones or broke the window, or I heard the rumour, or... I think some people have had to revisit the past, because I haven't gone away. I've pressed in, and here I am in the square, holding my own, and the people are ready for that. It has been difficult and misunderstood, and it's actually difficult to find the words for the depth of pain and isolation because we're trying to respect the town and we do and we're glad to be here we're honoured we're on a journey we know our past but we don't often reflect on the pain and the division or cry pity what or look what was done to us no I remember the day a, a bag of urine was thrown over me and my shorts were pulled down and what <laughs> yeah I my I have no idea why. Please tell me that wasn't recently. No, it wasn't recently. I think we caused a stir, and yet there's people coming in, even today, who said, I went to the park and I sung, He Made the Stars to Shine, Trinkle, Trinkle. And here they are in a charity shop, buying blankets for their bed and recording their childhood and saying, my children now go to the park and are coming home with the same stories as we had. We had a brilliant childhood because of you. I think we try to live a non-judgmental life with people, even though people have done things to us. And we've tried to be able to live in forgiveness of all that, and to work through it and let it go. And when we see them again, we're not holding a grudge. I mean, that is something we've had to learn. We've had to do it. If we're determined to be here and live here, because 
people do things and they regret it. So we all do things that we regret. So it's important to be able to release people from that and say, it's okay, we've forgiven you. Or if they've lived our life that isn't exactly the best kind of life, that we don't judge them. We try to help them to move forward into a better life. Reconciliation then, that's the word. Yeah. That's the big word. For those that are unfortunately unable to be here today, please come over, you'll see it. And a lot of it is due to reconciliation. So what does reconciliation mean to you then, Ian? Reconciliation means hope, being rich and being enriched by revisiting the past and not being afraid to say, sorry, I got it wrong. Or do you remember the day or the night, the year? And revisiting the past with hope. It's a biblical concept. But I, I remember the day I read my Bible and I discovered that reconciliation wasn't compromise, but St. Paul referred to it as ministry. And I'd been through Bible college, so I had studied Ephesians, but I studied the book and missed, wow, the ministry of reconciliation. It has dawned on me, it's been implanted in me, and so I like to facilitate people coming together who may be different, different emphasis, different interpretation of the past and different hopes for the future. But when we come back to the reconciler, Something happens in the heart. There was a guy staying at Darkley once and his father came to see him. And whatever happened, his father ended up hugging his son. And the son said to me afterwards, that's the first hug I've ever had from my dad. This place does it for me. And if we can facilitate the atmosphere of reconciliation and that culture, that's going to be powerful going forward. It's taking minist- the word reconciliation as a ministry from Scripture, making it a lifestyle and being confident when there's diverse people in the same room, not to expect division, but to expect unity. The outcome is going to be good. So 30 years ago when we met, I remember you telling me a, a story about, I think it was the local parish priest, actually coming to your door and dropping off clothes, and as if that was like the start, that maybe they were beginning to trust you. Where are we now, 30 years on, with all the denominational churches in this area? I think there's still a lot of suspicion. But I remember for my 40th anniversary, when we actually had it in the Rangers Hall, the GAA Sports Hall, which was a big achievement to get it and it was a big achievement I think for the organisers when we didn't insist that the bar would be closed it wasn't an issue so I think they felt very comfortable You didn't insist or you did insist? I didn't we didn't close it (laughs) it wasn't an issue we were using the facility and communicating our message and the local priest came and I asked him to say the opening grace of course I forgot to ask him to say the closing grace (laughs) (laughs) but that was walking in the light together. I think it, it is possible to do that and not, it's possible to do that and to be accused of compromise because you shouldn't have anything to do with them. But I can see God in a lot of people, in a lot of denominations. It's just having the courage to build on the good and what we have in common. We don't need to focus on what we separate on or what we don't emphasize together. We need to stop learning the Bible verses about head covering and church politics. And we need to learn some scriptures about being united in spirit. Because Christ is coming back for a united bride, complete. And that will not happen until we as Christians start to walk. 
in love and unity together. And it's possible and enjoyable. So, okay, $64,000 question then. It's possible and enjoyable. How are we going to do it? One step at a time. We do it by overcoming our fear and going to the priest, as I have done, and introducing myself and explaining what we are doing here before we actually do it. So it's giving respect and leadership and having a clear vision, maybe three or four visionary objectives that can be spoken quickly. This is what we plan to do and give him time to think and feel that's the way forward. We need to have the confidence to host gatherings and bring people together so that we can reconcile the past and give people space to practice forgiveness. Forgiveness is a dirty word. It's just, oh, it's biblical. It's in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray and yet we have adjusted that so much to mean something so little. And when we start to take the words of Jesus as meaningful as they are and stop trying to water it down or reduce it to some of the teachings of St Paul, we need to just believe it as it is and practice it. And forgiveness is a key. Forgiveness or letting go, sometimes I've used that term, for people impacted by the troubles who just find it very hard to say those words, I forgive you. But I think for those who have, they come into a greater peace and understanding and can rest the issue and trust God with it. I think if we could talk together more, we would find more answers. Victims and survivors would discover the truth, what happened to their loved one. But now we're so keen to deal with this area in the court. It's a prayer that I have one day that people would deal with it in the church and practice forgiveness. And I think they would find greater answers and better results than going through a legal system. One thing that my wife keeps haranguing me with, and that is forgiveness doesn't make you right, it makes you free. Mm-hmm. So I've, <laughs> that's what I have to learn. Looking back on your past 30 years, young Pauline, yes, yes, yes. forgiveness, <laughs> what does that mean to you? Well, forgiveness means to let go, of course, and it is easier said than done. But you do have to dig in, you do have to dig deep within yourself to forgive because people get hurt. Everybody hurts sometimes. Uh, we hurt each other without meaning to, but if we don't forgive, we, we just would never be able to exist, survive, keep going. Uh, otherwise, we just <laughs> lock the door and throw away the key, basically. So how many times have you wanted to do that in the past? If we're going through a tough time, it could be every week, <laughs> to be honest. Sometimes we've gone through bad times and we're thinking, what are we doing? Are we wise? Do we keep going? You know, the house been broken into, things burnt out and our children's toys were broken in the garden and different things happened to us along the way. And we often thought, oh, goodness, should we just call it a day? Yeah, yeah. But having said that, you know, we have, obviously we haven't. You haven't? But many people say, well, that's it, I've had enough, I'm packing up. I can fully justify the reasons for packing up. So why didn't you? I guess the calling was so deep within us, we really couldn't do it. We would have felt maybe that we had abandoned this area and abandoned the people that we'd grown to love and enjoy being with. And if we'd just walked away and got a house up in the north coast or something, I'm not sure that we would have survived (laughs) up there ourselves because... Our heart is down here in the South Armagh area and we probably would have shot ourselves in the foot kind of thing, you know, and it would have 
ended up not a comfortable life as we would have maybe thought it would have been. It had been probably more uncomfortable for us because we were going against what God had called us to do. Although, you know, I suppose that comes into free will or, or whatever, but you start the course. Trust then. How do you go about building trust? I'll ask Pauling this first of all. How do you go about doing it? Just one step at a time, I guess. I mean, you do trust people. We have trusted people and it hasn't worked really, you know. But it's getting to know people little by little, building on trust. It doesn't just happen overnight, really. Because some people you think, I'm a little bit wary of them. But over time, then you get to know them and then you do start to trust them. So it's just over time and taking your time with it and not rushing it. It's like a relationship you can't rush relationships so you you don't rush trust either it seems to me from being downstairs and you very kindly fed my wife and i that you build up a great trust because you know we were sitting with the locals and it seems fantastic so that must give you great credit i would have thought oh yes it's lovely to be and they are trusting us of course which is a big thing maybe more so than us trusting them because we just love all that and we're able to talk and no one is getting offended you know, we're, we're just talking openly and that's, that's good. That's over time and they've learned. I mean, we've known some of those ladies for over 30 years and um, they obviously trust us now, so that's nice. So where do we see Crossfire Trust? If I came back here in another 30 years' time, admittedly I'd be slightly older than I am now. Uh, <laughs> what do you think is going to happen to Crossfire Trust, Ian? I think the, the property will be passed on like a button and it'll be a marathon, there'll be a more speedy development because the property's there, it's registered, it's up to standard, it has a track record. When we started, we hardly knew what we were doing, a fireside ministry of listening and sharing. Now we have addiction support and homeless services and community laundrette, food bank and so on. It's a much better place. But to build trust, Sometimes I find it difficult and think I can't trust Sinn Féin. Their words are one thing and working for all. And if I can't trust a political party, I can trust God. He calls me to trust. And so I dig deep to find people within the party who I can relate to. And when, instead of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, find those hearts that will facilitate a private conversation for that deep part of me that wants to work in unity and cooperation together. And when I get frustrated with the DUP, who may have principles that are connected to a British society at the cost of Irish partnership, then I can dig deep for those people within the party who I can relate to and I pursue in hope. And again, there's people there who can understand where I'm coming from red and yellow, black and white, and having a heart for mission that (laughs) doesn't stop at a Protestant state or a British cultural identity. But the mission of Jesus is to love everyone. That flows over the border, over the barrier, to people who are bruised and broken. And it's love in action to whoever, for everyone. It's great. I know where I'm coming from. And that spirit of the Good Samaritan prevails, never to give up hope. And to come back for the investment, I think we've looked for um, a cheap piece or a, a quick reconciling experience, and that hasn't worked. The Good Samaritan, the guy, cleaned the wound and said he would come back in two days. There's something about coming back to see your investment 
and to build upon the wound that becomes a well and a wellspring of life for others to enjoy. I think the story of Crossfire and the legacy will be how we did it so that it can be done quicker and better in the future. And I think what you're trying to say here, basically, Ian, is that it doesn't matter which political party you go to, find someone that will actually understand what you're saying and you can then work accordingly. Would that be right? Yes, that's right. Uh, And there are people within parties, people with great heart and purpose and who want peace and want a, a shared society. Wow, how we work all that out how we look at a a united people in a united Ireland and not make the British feel so uncomfortable going forward if there was a political arrangement that they felt isolated in. But I did hear the words of a Republican TD once. He certainly didn't speak these words just because I was there. When the boot is on the other foot, we will not do to them what they did to us. I'm holding on to that. It's one thing to make that speech in public and another thing to put it into practice. And I hope that our political leaders will be of that heart and mind, that they will consider each other deeply and learn from the painful past of how awkward and, and very uncomfortable it was for nationalists to be in the unionist controlled environment where they didn't feel they had the right or the power to say and do as they wanted. I wouldn't like to see that boot on the other foot because it's painful and we can avoid the pain and enjoy peace and prosperity together. Two final questions and then uh, we'll find out who your Christian hero is. That's going to be interesting. Question number one then of my two-parter I say right at the beginning of most podcasts that this podcast is aimed not just at people who go to church, but those that don't go to church, and for those that are disillusioned. So for those that are listening today who are just like disillusioned with going to church or disillusioned with God, in light of everything you guys have been through, what would you say? Pauline first. Well, I don't mind people being disillusioned with church, but the thought of people being disillusioned with God would be not a nice place to be because God is never changing and doesn't mind what we're going through or doesn't mind what we're thinking. He is still there with us. But I know sometimes going to church doesn't really cut it and it's difficult for people. But don't uh, miss out on what God has for you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I think God's our Father in reality, a present help in every kind of trouble. The church is becoming, you know, you clean up and present yourself and even though people may say hello how are you there doesn't seem to be the time and space within a lot of churches for people to say how they are and if buildings could be redesigned to be less of a platform or pulpit and more congregational that would be better we need to discover the word reconciliation and community and have a a community of people journeying together lovely thank you and now the second part of april 10th 1987 when we first met, I remember vividly, as I said, what do you remember that day? And why exactly were you guys there in Bristol of all places? Not that there's anything wrong with Bristol, especially a certain football team, but what was going on? We were staying with friends in Bristol who kindly accommodated us because we were traveling from spring harvest in Minehead and I think our boat wasn't going until the next day and we needed accommodation and they kindly put us up, which was very generous of them. 
but we didn't know them very well and yeah. obviously we had strangers with us and they were very good to us to do that. That's what I mean, that the English church really were very supportive of what we did. What do you remember that time here? The sense of being included, even though one guy with us had been kneecapped and what that meant and that he felt secure talking about that and being included. It was a, a time of great hope when we sang songs from Graham Kendrick. Wow. Seemed to bring in a new decade, a new spiritual climate and hope. It was good that we could take people out, but we were coming back home from the far side of spring harvest to the warmth of that environment to maybe the chill of the fridge and the coldness of living life together. Well, I can't thank you enough for letting me come down today and uh, hear the wise words about reconciliation, about trust and what they can do. And I really do hope that people have been challenged by what you guys have shared. And if you want to speak to you guys, how can they do that, Ian? We're on Facebook, or the best is maybe by lifting the phone and having a brief conversation. It's 02837 531636. We like to chat. We like to drink coffee. We like to engage and walk through the garden and people can come most Wednesdays it's a visitor's day and that's when we are available for people to maybe engage to inquire more Christian hero time then who is your Christian hero please good sir I struggle a little I think George Verwer come to mind oh Pauline was thinking of him well I've got in first (laughs) (laughs) a guy of vision and compassion and creativity like to get the idea of a ship and books and training and sailing around the world, going into ports, stimulating a wider concept of mission and doing it maybe across denominations, stirring up house fellowships that thought they were trendy but didn't know their neighbour. So I think he stirred up a lot and left a good legacy. Pauline, George Verver, tell us more about him, please. Well, I think also then people got a lot of training. They were doing something completely different, really outside the church, I would say, and did open people's minds and hearts as to how they could reach reach out to other people uh, without having to go through the, the church building. And they were more free to serve God. And many people have given their whole lives to that group. So he has led a lot of people in a, a very good path. I'm thinking of another guy called Derek Copley, probably not very famous, but he was the principal of Moreland's Bible College. And he he was there when I was a student, and he wrote a book called Building with Bananas. He probably was before his time, but he had a vision of building up Moreland's to be a student body of 100. And he was the first person I knew that had a strategic drive And he did that in the years that he said he would do. Probably recognised in heaven, but not always recognised on earth. Well, Pauline, well, Ian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for letting me come here. And, yeah, I'm amazed that I'm sitting on the roof here in the middle of Cross McLean. And uh, 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago now, uh, 1987, who would have thought I'd be here now? So thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much.